If you've got, uh, if you can see a, a Bible in front of you, please uh, turn with me. We're continuing our sermon series called Out of the Storm, uh, Walking with God uh, Through Pain and Suffering, Out of the Storm. So, um, last week we looked at chapter one. As I said, I'm not going to go through uh, each verse by verse, uh, but we're going to uh, start today by looking at the first seven verses of chapter five and then the first 10 verses of chapter six. So it's on page 512. So it begins in chapter five. Uh, this is Eliphaz, one of Job's friends speaking, and then you get Job's response. So Eliphaz, this is his counsel. Call, if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? Resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. I myself have seen a fool taken root, but suddenly his house was cursed. His children are far from safety, crushed in court without a defender. The hungry consume his harvest, taking it even from among thorns, and the thirsty pant after his wealth. For hardship does not spring from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. Yet man is born to trouble, as surely as sparks fly upwards. Chapter 6. Then Job replied, If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. Does a wild donkey bray when it has grass? Or an ox bellow when it has fodder? Is tasteless food eaten without salt? Or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Oh, that I may have my request, that God would grant what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me, to let loose his hand and cut me off. Then I would still have this consolation, my joy in unrelenting pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Amen. This is God's word. Yesterday afternoon, uh, I was doing some work in my study, and Bethan asked me to print off a piece uh, of uh, writing that she'd just produced. It happened to be uh, a poem that she'd decided to write for uh, the Rotary Young Writer Competition. And, uh, and it began with these words. It says this, As winter whistles away, blood is spilled where it will stay. We lose loved ones for whom we care and wish to see them back standing there. And her poem that she'd written goes on to draw upon the themes of of hope in difficult times, of inner peace, of forgiveness, of love. Though it begins, as you've heard, with this this acknowledgement, and this is just of someone in primary school, of of an acknowledgement of the reality and rawness of loss and suffering. And it reminded me, actually, of some well-known words from Macbeth, 
famous line because they ring true uh, in our human condition because suffering is common to all humankind. These words from Macbeth, each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike, heaven on the face. It is true, each new morn. I woke up this morning to have received a text message from someone in our church family who just said that their mother had passed away. Just this week, one of our uh, young uh, people from our youth group has effectively been left an orphan. Each new morn, new widows howl, new orphans cry, new sorrows strike heaven on the face. Last week, we started our sermon series in the book of Job by examining uh, the first question that we often face, that are often on our lips when we face uh, pain and suffering. And that question is the question, why? And uh, for exploring together the opening chapter of this book of Job, uh, we asked the question, why? Why, in the face uh, of, the, uh, of the truth that God hates suffering, he hates suffering and he hates evil, and yet he is also immeasurably uh, pow- more powerful than Satan, and he remains in complete control, then why does God allow suffering? Now, as I said uh, last week, there's no simple answer to the question why. In fact, uh, the length of this book, 42 chapters, with the complex philosophical and theological questions it wrestles with, is an indication that glib answers will not suffice. Nevertheless, through exploring uh, a few verses last week, we, we, we started to unravel one strand, one thread of the answer to the question, why does God allow suffering? And it became more and more clear that one of the reasons why is that, that God only permits suffering to the extent that it will accomplish the exact opposite of what Satan wants to do in your life. Satan wanted to to prove Job to be a phony, and yet through the suffering he inflicted, Job became known as a man of integrity, someone who has inspired and encouraged millions in their own times of pain and hardship. Just before this service began, I was talking to someone within our church family who, who, who testified about their own times of struggle and darkness and how God was using them in this present instance to inspire and encourage others through their times of difficulty. Why? There is no simple answer. The biblical response is that we might never know this side of eternity, why we are suffering, just as Job did not know at all ever why he was suffering, nor what it was accomplishing. However, worldly wisdom, worldly wisdom offers the opposite. It offers cheap solutions to complex issues. When faced with the reality of suffering and the inevitable question of why, there are two answers that we often hear, and I would like to call these answers and explore these answers today, uh, the religious response and the secular response. The religious response and the secular response. And so, first of all, let's dive into the religious response. And notice, I am deliberately separating what I'm calling the religious response 
and I'm separating it from and I'm contrasting it to the Christian biblical response. So, so the religious response sort of encompasses a whole host of religious worldviews and might just as easily be called the moralistic response to suffering. So what is the religious response to suffering? Well, the religious person starts to ask the question why and ends it with this. Why is God punishing me? You know, what am I doing? Do I need to to pray more? Do I need to go to church? What do I need to do to get out of this suffering? And there are lots of uh, people, not only of different faiths, but even within the, the wider worldwide church that, that either consciously or subconsciously adopt this way of thinking. You know, they say, if you're sick, you just need to have more faith for healing. Or if you're facing financial difficulties, you just need to believe more. You even find this even beyond the, wor- the walls of organized religion. For instance, um, just the other day, I think it was last week, I was listening to BBC Radio, just mainstream radio, and there was a, a piece on the popular trend uh, in modern psychology called manifesting. Now, I'd never heard of uh, such manifesting before. I was quite interested to see what it's all about. But it appears that there's a growing belief in society that you can quite literally make your wishes come true simply by mentally visualizing them coming into being. So people with no formal faith to speak of that claim, and there was numerous people are claiming that the way that you achieve financial success or good health or healthy relationships is simply to mentally visualize them. And so the religious response, be it from organized religion or popular psychology, is to say the way out of suffering is to do something to pray more, uh, to have more faith, um, to to visualize what you want to happen, to go to church more, whatever you think it is. And the second type of, of glib answer that you hear to the question of suffering is the secular response. If religious people see, you know, let's be honest here, religious people see suffering as some kind of divine punishment, then, then secular people see suffering as, the sh- as, as merely the evidence of the sheer randomness of life. Religious people think that if you lead a good life, then good things will happen to you. And if you're suffering, well, all you need to do is to pray more and to have more faith. Secular people, on the other hand, interpret suffering as simply evidence that there is no God at all. Or if there is a God, he's, he's indifferent, he's absent, he's incompetent, he's, he's downright capricious, which, which, which is just a, a, a way to say that you know, he's given to sudden and unexpected changes in mood and behavior. You see, if religious people seek to appease a displeased God, then the secular person says that God's out of town. You know, God, God, God can sling a hook. You know, he, he isn't worth our time and attention if he allows such suffering and evil in our world. And so, in terms of earthly wisdom, we are provided with these two quite simple and, let's be honest, glib responses to the question of suffering. The religious response is the idea of a tit for tat God, a God who's always keeping tabs on us. 
And then you have this secular belief that suffering is just evidence that there is no God, that life is random, just a cruel game of chance that is meaningless, just a froth of the universe. And that there is no good, and there is no all-powerful God in charge of everything. But if you were with us last week, and, and if you weren't, you can, if you're interested, you can catch up on our podcast. If you were with us uh, last week, you will know uh, that we studied this amazing dialogue between Job and, uh, sorry, between God and Satan in the opening chapter of our book, which showed that both the religious and the secular approaches are absolutely wrong and spiritual dead ends. And do you know, do you know, that despite these things being, uh, on, on, in one instance, completely opposite ends of the spectrum to one another, the religious and the secular, do you know something? They have one thing in common, one very core thing in common. They all seek to keep us in control. They're just all about control. The religious person says to him or herself that, that if I do this or I do that, then God has to bless me. God has to bless me. And the secular person looks at suffering and says to himself that, that God's out to lunch. And so you owe him nothing. You know, live however you want. Live however you want. See, both of these is about how we can remain in control. But the Bible says that both of these things are glib answers. There are answers from people just trying to cling and control through pain and suffering. And the biblical response is to trust God, even though, like Job, we might never know this side of eternity for the reason for our suffering. Saints, when faced with the question of the why of suffering, the biblical response is to hold on to the mystery. Don't try to get an answer to stay in relationship with a God that you cannot control. If he's a God you can control, he's no God at all. Stay in relationship with him. And friends, this is exactly what we see our, our, our Job doing in our passage today. So the book of Job can be largely split into sort of three sections. The first section is a dialogue between God and Satan, and we looked at that last week. Um, and then there's this long dialogue between Job and his friends, stretching from chapter three to somewhere in the mid-twenties. And then it concludes with this amazing dialogue between Job and God himself. And today, Today we're diving into that middle section. We're looking at part of the dialogue between Job and his friends. Now Job has uh, three friends that come to visit him uh, and they give him counsel. Eliphaz, Bildad and Zophar. And to be honest, the friends just do an absolutely terrible job at comforting Job and helping him understand his uh, suffering, helping him to interpret the suffering. They do an absolutely terrible job. So much so that in chapter 16, a verse that makes me smile, verse 2, Job calls them, uh, Job calls them his miserable comforters. You know, so his friends have, have gathered around him and he says this, Job says, miserable comforters are you all. You know, that's why I've called this talk today, you know, with friends like these, with friends like these. What we, what we read earlier are sort of two slices out of an ongoing dialogue between Job and one of his miserable comforters, Eliphaz. They're two sort of slices. So if, if you've got your Bibles, basically, you can see that chapter four and chapter five 
are Eliphaz's attempts to counsel Job with sort of the best of earthly wisdom. And then in chapter six to seven, Job answers Eliphaz. And what is clear from this conversation is Eliphaz is clearly articulating the religious response to suffering that we've, that we've been looking at today. Now, we didn't have a chance to read the whole of chapters four to five, the Council of Eliphaz, but if you turn back to me, one page, to, to for instance, I'm just going to read one section out of chapter four. Uh, let's read verses seven to eight now, where you can see a clear articulation of this religious worldview that we've been unpacking this morning. So verse seven to eight. Consider now who, being innocent, has ever perished. Where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. Now, this is quite unsympathetic and harsh uh, from Eliphaz. He's basically saying, Job, innocent people don't suffer. Upright people are not destroyed. And the fact that you're suffering is an indication that you need to get yourself right with God. He says, those who sow trouble reap it. So the fact that Job is experiencing pain and hardship is of his own making. Job needs to get his house in order to work out what he's doing that is displeasing to God. And then, and only then, will God listen to his cry for help. Now, can I just say, you know, that big thing on our wall, the cross, goes to show how utterly wrong Eliphaz is. You know, because in Jesus, did the innocent perish? Yes. Were the upright destroyed? Yes. Did Jesus sow evil and trouble? No. And yet he reaped it upon himself. So this idea that Eliphaz, that, that basically if you're going through a tough time, it's because, you know, somehow you've done something wrong to God. You know, it's proven wrong upon the cross. And, 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 Joe, and what Eliphaz is saying is, is basically, God isn't going to listen to you. He's not going to listen to your cries for help unless, until you get your house in order. And, and in fact, this is what Eliphaz says in, in the opening verse of our, the passage that we read. So in verse 1 of chapter 5, we read this. Eliphaz says, call if you will, but who will answer you? To which of the holy ones will you turn? That word call uh, simply means to pray with emotion. You know, last week we talked about the importance of, of praying to God with emotional realism. And Eliphaz is basically telling Job to give up praying because God is not, not going to listen to him. And nor is his holy ones, his angels, going to listen to him until Job can get himself right with God. And he implies that Job is a fool. The fool, in the biblical sense of the word, is someone who is disobedient to God. And so when Eliphaz says in verse 3, um, I myself have seen a fool taken root, but suddenly his house was cursed. That's what it says. I myself have seen a fool taken root, but suddenly his house was cursed. What he's saying here, that even fools, even those who are disobedient, can prosper yeah, for a short while. Even fools can take root, but eventually everything falls apart. And this is how Eliphaz interprets Job's suffering. Notice, here last week you can see that the, the, the opening verses, we read that, that Job was prosperous. 
But Eliphaz interprets his, his prosperity was just an example of a fall taking root only now to see his house cursed. And then in verse six, Eliphaz once more picks up on the religious mindset that you reap what you sow. So uh, let's read verse six. For hardship does not spring up from the soil, nor does trouble sprout from the ground. In other words, you know, hardship doesn't just spring up in its own. It's because you've, you've sowed it. Trouble doesn't just spring up. It's because you've sowed it. In other words, Job's predic- uh, Job's predicament is of his own making. He is reaping what he has sowed. Hardship and trouble that is sprouting up is evidence that he has sowed the seeds of this. And what he needs to do is to get himself in order. Now, let's be clear. This is the religious response to suffering. It is not the biblical response to suffering. It is the response that seeks to keep us in control. And I'm glad that, that, that Job ignores Eliphaz's counsel. And in chapter six, he does the complete opposite of what Eliphaz asked him to do. Eliphaz asks him not to call out anymore. In other words, not to pray with emotional realism. But he doesn't stop praying. He doesn't stop calling out to God. Instead, he is even more emotionally visceral with God. And he calls out to God in rawness and honesty. Let's read chapter, uh, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 6. If only my anguish could be weighed and all my misery be placed on the scales, it would surely outweigh the sand of the seas. No wonder my words have been impetuous. The arrows of the Almighty are in me. My spirit drinks in their poison. God's terrors are marshaled against me. These might seem harsh words from Job to God. But what's remarkable is that Job only ever says these words to God. He only ever says these words to God in prayer. You can see it's, it's a prayer. Um, uh, it's a deferential prayer, uh, 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 but it's a prayer nevertheless. For instance, uh, when it says, oh, that I might have my request, that God, because in, in this context, you, you never really speak to God in the first person, but to be more deferential, you just speak to him in the third person. Just like when you approach the king, you might say, you know, oh king, you, you, oh king, may you hear my request. Um, so he says, oh God would grant me what I hope for, that God would be willing to crush me and to let loose his hand to cut me off. You know, actually, these are quite harsh words. Speaking of a wish to die, he's been radically raw with God. And yet, as a small aside, what I want to say is that actually, you know, one thing that is clear from Job is that suicide is not an answer. He sounds suicidal, but suicide is not an answer. Because, you know, if, if you've got, you know, a plate of, 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 of a lovely, I don't know what you like, you know, steak dinner in front of you. If you've got a steak dinner in front of you, you know, you don't pray to God you know, Lord, give me a steak dinner. You've already got one. The reason why God, uh, Job asks God to, to, to take his life is because he knows that suicide is not an option. Suicide is not an option. That He has not got the right to, to, to take his own life. But anyway, I digress a, a little bit. Um, so where, where are we? In contrast, Job 
In contrast, Eliphaz is, is telling Job to stop his complaining and that all that Job needs to do is to pull himself together. Yeah, he needs to examine his life in conscience. He needs to work out where uh, he hasn't been showing faith or hasn't been obeying God to figure out what he's been doing and to make amends. Then everything will be fine. You know, that's what Eliphaz is saying. Pull yourself together, Job. Yeah, get your life in order and everything will be fine. You know, with friends like these, who needs enemies? You see, Eliphaz, who encompasses this religious worldview, doesn't grasp the biblical complexity of humans, nor, nor does he grasp the biblical complexity of suffering. This religious worldview is just a glib, oversimplistic response to the question of suffering. You see, religious people want to reduce everything down to the spiritual and moral. So what you get from them is a lecture. What is Eliphaz giving Job? He's giving him a lecture, a list of things he needs to do to get himself right with God. But then again, you know that secular response we talked about? The secular response is just as reductionistic. You know, if religious people want to reduce people down just to the spiritual and moral, then the secular people just want to reduce people down to, to, to the physical, to the biochemical. You know, if, if, if religious people just want to give us a lecture, then secular people just want to give us a pearl. Now, let's be clear. There is a benefit in both gentle challenge, but also there's a benefit in medication. Both can be of a benefit. As I've said before, we believe in the power of God to heal, but we also believe in the benefits of medical expertise and medicine. You see, what I'm trying to communicate here is that these two responses are oversimplistic by themselves. What I'm trying to communicate is that there's a complexity to human nature, and you can't just weigh in and deal with discouragement and depression as if it all comes down to one thing. The secular response reduces human complexity down to biochemistry, and the religious person reduces human complexity down to simply morality. You know, the, the religious person says, you know, have you prayed in faith? Have you rebuked the devil? Have you confessed your sins? Have you claimed the promises of God? Have you given thanks for all the things that God has done in your life? Well, saints, all these things are found in the Bible, and all these things are, in fact, helpful, just as, in fact, medicine can be helpful for someone who is depressed. But this is not the full picture. We're not just spiritual beings, and we're not just physical beings. We are both. And we are even more complex than that. We are, for example, relational beings. Now, time is ticking on, so let me finish with one more illustration, this time from 1 Kings chapter 19. Turn with me, actually, if you will, uh, back to page 361. Back to page 361. And by the way, as we're turning, I just want to say, this isn't just how God deals with Elijah. He goes on to deal with Elijah by speaking to him in a still small voice, by giving him that challenge. You know, sometimes there is that need for truths being spoken into our situation. But let's listen to, to what's happening here. So Elijah the prophet in 1 Kings 19 is completely wrung out. He is cracked under the pressure of thinking uh, of, of that all that he's worked for has gone. He is deeply depressed. 
You know, he is someone, again, who's not suicidal, but he's real with God and he's calling out to God that God would take his life. You know, this is real internal struggles. And so verse uh, four to eight, let's read it together. I have had enough, Lord, he said. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. So what did God do? God sent his angel to give him a boot up the backside. No, he didn't. Look what happens. All at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by the food, he traveled for 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. And so, so yes, he also goes on to, to speak to him in that still small voice. But, but actually, what do we see here? God sends the angel of the Lord to Elijah in his depression And unlike Job's friends, Eliphaz, the angel doesn't just give him a lecture. He doesn't just reduce Elijah uh, to the spiritual. He understands human complexity. He cooks Elijah a meal. He gives him water to drink, and then he basically tells Elijah to get some good sleep. He lies him down to sleep. And then when he wakes up, you know, he he gives Elijah some more food. And then he's restored for the journey to come. And sometimes, saints, what we need is a home-cooked meal, a good night's sleep, and a walk in the countryside. Just like Elijah did. Because, you know, we're not just spiritual. We're also physical. And we're also relational. Sometimes what we need is a hug. We need to know that we are loved. Saints, don't listen to religious voices that want to reduce all your problems down to just the spiritual and the moral. You know, don't just listen to the secular voices that want to reduce all your problems to biochemistry. Listen instead to the wonderful biblical witness that says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made, that God knows you more than you know yourself and yet loves you more than you could ever imagine. Stick close to God through your pain and suffering and he will lead you out of the storm. Let's stand. We're going to pray and then we're going to move into our, our final song together.